you're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and this week we'll be joined by Professor Gordon Wallace, Executive Director of the ARC Centre of Excellence in Electromaterials Science. Born in Northern Ireland in the lead-up to the Troubles, Gordon learned quickly to work hard and stay out of trouble. When his family decided to flee the growing violence in 1972, Gordon thought they were joking, but he soon found himself a world away in Australia with few connections to lean on. A diligent work ethic and a passion for team sports ultimately helped Gordon settle into this new home, completing not only high school, but university and a doctoral degree in electrochemistry. Since then, Gordon has spent most of his career at the leading edge of polymer and nanotechnology science. Gordon's research program has been the source of a number of spin-out companies, including Aquahydrex, Nanocarbon, and Tricep. And he himself has been the recipient of two honorary doctorates, a Eureka Prize for Research Leadership, the New South Wales Scientist of the Year Award, and an Order of Australia Medallion. I'm excited to have Gordon on the show, and I started by asking him about his current role as the director of the ARC Centre of Excellence. Yeah, so ARC is, is that national centre of excellence. Uh, it has seven uh, different partners, national partners involved. We also have collaborators in a number of hospitals uh, around the country, uh, and indeed collaborators and clinical collaborators uh, overseas as well. You know, building on 10 years of fundamental research that's been funded uh, under the ARC Centre of Excellence scheme. We, we really are in a period of translation at the moment, and so it's, it's drawing on that fundamental knowledge now to turn that into practical applications over the next uh, two to three years. Now, the, not to say that we've just gone from one to the other, uh, but you know, we've been ramping up the translational activities uh, in parallel with our fundamental research stream over that last 10-year period. Well, can I take you back now? You were born in 1958 in Belfast, Northern Ireland. It's a long time ago. It, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you be the judge of that. Um, but it's a city with a deep industrial heritage with textile mills and shipbuilding, um, and it was also experiencing some tough economic conditions at the time. I wonder if you could reflect on how your early family and school experiences were affected by that working-class environment. Yeah, I, I think it's affected in, in many ways. Uh, and of course, it was also an environment uh, which wasn't particularly good uh, environmentally, let's say, uh, in terms of that was, you know, in, in my early days in Belfast, that was definitely the times of the, the, the troubles, as they call them. Uh, and so I think all of that, including the uncertainty around that transition in, in manufacturing, created a real uncertainty for everybody, you know, including kids. And so. Uh, I think what you learned to do was that uh, nothing was certain and so the only way to be to try and make things more certain was to work as hard as you could and, and, and do things that would uh, result in very positive uh, outcomes. You know, you're always trying to do as well as you could uh, academically and I was never academically gifted. Uh, it was just, you know, I, I knew that I had to work hard. Uh, a lot harder than most other people uh, to, to, to try and get some runs on the board in that area. You know, we, we had in those days at the end of primary school, and I, I guess they still have it in Australia a little bit, you know, the, the selective school thing. And so they had this exam at the end of uh, primary school, which of course I worked incredibly hard uh, to try and pass. Uh, and I got on some reserve list for some 
uh, selective school, which I eventually got into, but it was obvious that I just got into it because they, they graded everyone A, B, C, D, E, and I was in class E when I started. So scrapped then, anyhow, that's, that's been the story often uh, throughout life. Scrapped then, but continued to work hard and uh, worked, uh, worked my way back up through the A, B, C, D, E to B in A just before we immigrated to Australia. So, you know, just lucky to scrape in sometimes, but then just make the most of it. Okay, so your family left Northern Ireland in 1972 when you were around 13 years old. Now, as you mentioned, not only was this a formative age for you personally, but it was one that was particularly poignant for Northern Ireland. I want to ask you um, what impact those events had on influencing your parents' decision to bring you to Australia and, and how that cultural shift and change in atmosphere impacted you as a teenager. Yeah, look, I, I was stunned when uh, my parents told us we were going to Australia. I, mean, I thought, first of all, I didn't know where it was. Uh, and I'd heard of it, uh, and when I had a look at where it was, it seemed to be awful bloody far away. Uh, and it was, of course. Uh, and, and still, uh, until we actually got on the boat, I didn't believe we were going. You know, even when we were driving to the boat in the car, I thought, this is all a ruse. You know, there's something else going on. We're going somewhere else. We can't be going to the other side of the world. Uh, but no, and, and they, the reason uh, our parents left, it was definitely because of the, the troubles. We were, we were living right in the middle of Belfast. Uh, and there were some very interesting <laughs> instances, let's say, uh, that we experienced as kids because of being in the middle of that. And, and that was definitely the reason that they left. Uh, but I still couldn't understand why we were leaving because when you're in the middle of it, you're in the middle of it. You, know, you don't know anything different. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I turn up in Geelong uh, in Victoria. Uh, and within two days, I realised that this really was a different world. And it was a totally different world uh, with totally different opportunities. And... Uh, yeah, and never looked back since. But I, I knew getting onto the boat, I had no idea why we were going. Getting off the boat, I still didn't know why we were here. But two days later, I, I realised, I think. Yeah, amazing. Um, so your family settled relatively happily in Geelong, um, and you pursued a passion for soccer alongside your academic progress, uh, attending Deakin University for a Bachelor of Science and a PhD, while also receiving University Blue as part of the All-Australian University soccer team. Um, do you think those team sports passions have shaped the way you conduct yourself? Oh, absolutely, and you know, and even even in in Belfast, uh, growing up as as a young kid, uh, we were always encouraged to play uh, those team sports, uh, and I I think that it definitely shapes your thinking, uh, it shapes your commitment to other people, uh, shapes shapes your responsibility towards other people, uh, and and also points out to you, you know, that you can't do everything. Uh, that you know you you might have some skills, but unless you're surrounded in the case of soccer by uh, eleven or twelve blokes that have other skills, you're not going to go anywhere. And it definitely shapes those. And you know, and I had uh, the great fortune to to coach my, my son's team for quite a number of years. They take them right through to uh, under 18s, where they they won the championship. And and none of those kids were skilled. They were a bit like us, you know. But. Uh, but geez, they worked together as a team, and they and they learned to work together as a team over those many years that they were together, and it's just amazing. And and, and that's transferred into everything that I do, uh, and everything that we all do here uh, in the research center. Everybody knows that. Okay, I'm I'm pretty good at something, but I'm not good at everything. Um, so after your PhD, you took up a lecturing position initially back in Ireland at the University of Cork, uh, but two years later in 1985, you were lured back to Australia at a position at the University of Wollongong. Uh, like Geelong and Belfast before that, Wollongong's a coastal city with a deep industrial heritage. Is there something that attracts you to seaside industrial towns? No, no, not at all. In fact, you know, when I told people I was going to Cork, they advised me not to go. 
And then coming back to uh, Wollongong again, I, I rang people, told them about the job in Wollongong, and they said, no, don't go there. Don't go there. The, the, the only thing Wollongong's famous for is the, the, that movie or that series, you know, The Girl from Steel City or something that's on SBS or, uh, or Auntie Jack and Wollongong the Brave. And this was the only advice I got about Wollongong. So I don't know. I, I do know how I ended up here. Uh, the, the guy who taught me into coming, of course, was the head of department at the time. Leon Keane McGuire, who rang me in, in Cork. And uh, you know, it's the only interview I've done where I didn't actually answer any questions. Because he would, he would ask the question and then he would answer it and just look for a yes or no from me that the answer was appropriate. And I thought, this guy's mad, I've got to go and work with him. As unusual as Leon's interview style was, Gordon's decision to take a chance proved prescient. Over the next five years, Gordon worked as a lecturer and postdoctoral researcher at the University of Wollongong, and his friendship and camaraderie with the head of school only grew. Ultimately, Leon's work behind the scenes helped Gordon set up his own research lab under the moniker of the Intelligent Polymer Research Institute, and Gordon himself became a tenured professor at the age of 32. I asked Gordon to elaborate on the value of his relationship with Leon and on mentorship more generally. Yeah, look, you've got to be lucky to, to meet the right people at the right time. Uh, and then you've got to be smart enough to realise that you've, you've met the right person at the right time. Uh, and, and look, I, I still hear stories now that I didn't know about at the time, where, where Leon was carving the path uh, for many of us, not just for me. Uh, and what he was doing, none of us knew, but we, we still learn about things that he'd been doing internally and externally to the university. Uh, to smooth the waters and to make sure that things were successful uh, for, for many of us. Uh, and, you know, Leon was one of a, a very small group of, of people that have really had a big influence on, on what I've been able to do and, and consequently on what we've been able to do together as part of our uh, research activities. Uh, you know, I was also fortunate to meet uh, Professor Graham Clark quite a number of years ago. Uh, Graham really steered us into the whole area of biomedical applications of our uh, materials. I, I had you know, fanciful ideas along those lines long before meeting Graham, but he turned it into some sort of reality, uh, being the pragmatic and brilliant person that he is. Uh, also had the great fortune you know, to have a very close association with, with Alan McDermott, uh, and how that happened was purely coincidental. Of course, Alan went on to win the Nobel Prize, and we, we were very close uh, collaborators for many years. Uh, and but that was just pure luck, you know. At a conference, uh, given a talk, and Alan came up, talked to us afterwards. Then he became the chair of our international advisory board, and we continued those developments uh, for for many years. And then, you know, more recently, learning from the expertise of uh, Dame Bridget Ogilvie as the chair of our international advisory board. I mean, you know, you, you, you don't go down to Centrelink and find this expertise. This is amazing stuff. These people are are geniuses. They've been through it. They've done it. Uh, they can show that people how to do it uh, and teach us how to do it. And without people like that, they're real pioneers, uh, you could struggle for a long time. So I guess two related questions on this topic. How did Leon find you and how do you find the people that you view as leaders? Oh, look, Leon found me purely coincidentally. You know, I mean, there's no way no. And he will say that he planned it. You know, he probably still does. Uh, but, you know... But uh, there's no way now that he planned it. Again, that was pure coincidence. Uh, I, and I think, but we knew, you know, 
seriously, that, that phone call uh, was, was pretty interesting. And we both knew just by you know, messing around on the phone, uh, with a bit of banter for 45 minutes that we could work together. And that, that was, that's really all that interview was about. You know, could we work together? Because you know, with any job, you can walk away from it at any time, anyhow. But it's, it's having the confidence that you can work with someone uh, and work productively with them. If you've got that confidence, then everything else falls into place. Great advice. Um, so let's move on to what was perhaps the most game-changing moment of your research career, which was being awarded that ARC Centre of Excellence in Electromaterial Science, first in 2005 and renewed in 2013, collectively providing tens of millions of dollars of funding. Um, could you tell us a bit about what work you've undertaken through that scheme? Sure. Uh, so look, we've been very privileged to be able to undertake uh, very exploratory research into the area of electromaterials. Uh, discovering and developing new types of electromaterials in the nano world was very much our initial focus. Uh, having done that, we, we, we soon realized that these materials are amazing. You know, I mean, you get down to that, those dimensions in materials and you discover all sorts of extraordinary things about these even sometimes boring materials. Uh, but very quickly, it also became obvious that, that that's nice, but if we can't extricate these properties from this, you know, almost imaginary nano world into something that's tangible and something you can do something with. Well, it's been a nice journey, but it's not going to do much. Uh, and, and so we really started very early on thinking about how we could get these types of materials into other structures and other devices that would be useful. Uh, and, and we focused, uh, for the most part, in, in areas to do with getting those amazing properties into structures and devices that could be useful for energy, whether that's energy conversion or energy storage, uh, and into new medical technologies uh, for implantable or wearable technologies. Uh, and that's been highly successful. Um, as, as well as fundamental research, I understand the Centre of Excellence grants provided for kind of industry linkages, research commercialisations, and those those targeted applications you're doing. Um, I wonder if you could talk about what programs you implemented in those those areas of, of translation. Yeah, uh, look, we've always uh, worked closely uh, with industry uh, from my very early days of coming back here to Wollongong, and and we've continued to do that as part of the the Centre of Excellence. So, I think what's really changed and changed for the better is that we used to think about engaging industry at the end of the research pipeline. Uh, and so you had this in your mind, at least, this very linear process, you know, great idea, explore the idea, make the idea work, write the paper, oh, hang on, contact industry. You know, they might be interested in it. Um, that, that's, that's changed. Uh, and if you look at that pipeline now, you could throw a blanket over it and say industry now can be engaged in all of it. Uh, and then that's what we very much do uh, as part of the Centre of Excellence and, and all of our other activities is to engage industry right along the pipeline from the generation of the ideas, uh, the refinement of the ideas, uh, and making sure that what comes out at the end of that pipeline is industry ready or at least more industry ready than what it used to be. Uh, things have really changed. The, the research culture has changed, uh, it's, it's particularly in Centres of Excellence. All the Centres of Excellence that I know and work with uh, all have that culture of, of engaging from day one through to the, the translational aspect. And, 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 and that provides a much better training environment as well. Uh, so now you've got students who, uh, they're not like we were, where you sort of you know, locked away and do your experiments for three years and then come out and write something up and 
hopefully you'll get a job somewhere. It, it's very different. I mean, from day one, students are engaged in an environment uh, that is very inclusive of, let's not just call it industry, but end user engagement. Uh, because it isn't just industry, right? I mean, it, to get to the industry, there's you know the other elements that you need in terms of that end user engagement might be uh, innovators or entrepreneurs who build new business models. You, know, maybe you might have to create a new industry to get something uh, into application. Uh, you might have to work with regulatory authorities or those involved in ethics to make sure that you can smooth that pathway. But but that's today's research environment. That's that's pretty exciting. I, I wouldn't mind being being back in the lab. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a bit about kind of spin-out structuring. I know you've had three separate ventures that I'm aware of that's come out of here. Uh, Nanocarbon that became Imagine Intelligent Materials, uh, Aquahydrex, and also Tricep now as a translational institute. And each of these kind of had a, a different pathway, one with kind of heavy venture capital backing, another that came out of a time with an entrepreneur in residence in-house, and then the third, which is an 100% university-owned venture. Um, can you talk a bit about those business models and how they came to be? Yeah, look, really, they, they came to be by listening to what other people wanted, uh, you know, and this was really an educational experience for all of us, I think. Uh, you know, if you look at all of those, they didn't end up being what we thought they would be when we started to talk to people. Uh, and it was only through listening and refining uh, that we ended up with something that was acceptable, uh, acceptable to people who wanted to use it, acceptable to people who wanted to invest in it. Uh, and, and I think that's the, the key thing um, for researchers. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's not something we're used to, but, but that's changing as well. Uh, and it's definitely changed in the last 10 years. Uh, you know, we're involved in this, uh, within the center, there's a group involved in a, a project on a prosthetic hand, soft robotic hand. And uh, when we first started this phase of the center, we all sat down, we had amazing ideas about what we could build into this prosthetic hand. You know, this was gonna be the hand the hand that beat all other hands. Uh, but then we also had at the table uh, some of our colleagues uh, from ethics, and, and they suggested that, uh, you know, these, these were all great ideas, they were blown away by, but they, they suggested, uh, you know, well, what about if you go and, you know, talk to the people who use these hands, you know, and see what they really want in the hand. And uh, so we sort of looked at each other a bit stunned by this idea. Uh, and anyhow, we did it. Uh, and the group did it, sorry, I, I didn't do it personally, but the group did it. Uh, and, and the results have been amazing. Uh, and, you know, and, and what a simple thing. I mean, really, we should be doing that right on a day-to-day -day basis. If we're going to do research, let's talk to the people who are likely to use it and make sure that we're setting it up in the best way possible for, for success. Uh, and that was certainly true of all of those ventures that you mentioned. Uh, we, we learned to listen. Uh, we learn to refine and then uh, to deliver, uh, but I think we can get even better at that in terms of even designing our own research programs, not just the translational programs. Yeah, well, please uh, elaborate on that if you can. What would be your ideal situation to structure that research program? Uh, I, I think it should have the, the input of, of end users, and, and it won't surprise me. It, you know, the way we're going with research grants, you can see it's starting to appear uh, that you will require some evidence that end user groups have been involved uh, in articulating the challenge, in trying to help uh, with develop the research plan, uh, and being committed to the translational part of that plan. It won't surprise me if that becomes a very formal part uh, of even fundamental research programs in the future. 
I guess that leads on to your, your feelings on the, the grant environment and how the structuring of those awards has influenced your own work and then also research in Australia more generally. Yeah, you can't do the sort of things that we've been privileged to be able to do in the last 10, 12 years without something like Centre of Excellence funding. Uh, having said that, um, we're, we've been incredibly lucky to get two goers at that. And as I keep telling a lot of the people I work with, they have been incredibly privileged to get that funding because there's many other people equally as good, if not better, uh, than we are in terms of research distributed around the country that, that don't get that opportunity. And so when you're given that opportunity, it's very important to make, make the most of it. Um, there's, no, there's no obvious replacement for the research funding schemes or mechanisms that we have in place. Uh, unfortunately, that means that only a small percentage get funded. But I think it's then imperative that those people that do get funded are as inclusive as possible in terms of collaborations to make sure that we do draw on all the wealth of talent around the country uh, and to engage as much of it as we can to get success for everyone. Absolutely. And, and I guess in some ways your, your brand of research has evolved over time as well under different banners. How important is that to, to the success in the grant pathway? Uh, I think it's, it's important, maybe not the success of, of a grant as such, uh, but where that's really important is in terms of lifting the, the international profile. Of what we do. ACES is very well known internationally. If you go in any sort of electromaterial, electrochemical, energy, medical technologies area, people will know who ACES is or what ACES is. Similarly, you know, Tricep was only established over a year ago. Uh, you know, within the next year or so, it will be globally recognized as a, a world leading bioprinting translational facility. And and, and that's, that's critical. I, I mean, to be to be successful nationally, we have to be incredibly competitive internationally. We have to be recognised on the global stage in order to be a, a national contributor. And, and all of those profiles help us to build that. I guess in a similar vein, you're, you're hosting a few big conferences. Uh, one coming up is Biomaterials. Is that uh, Biofabrication uh, 2020, Biofab by the Beach. Yeah, that's in September this year. So that's, and, and, and again, you know, we've been lucky in, in early stages of various phases of our development uh, to attract these international conferences. You know, we attracted the International Conference on Synthetic Metals around the time that Alan won the, the Nobel Prize uh, and the other Nobel Prize winners, and we had them here in Wollongong, big conference, big event. You know, certainly puts Wollongong on the world stage uh, when we do that, and if you're lucky to get those events, uh, it's an important part of building the profile. And similarly with biofabrication, you know, this is the first time it's been in Australia. It's been running for 10 years as an international conference. Uh, and, and we're getting it at a time which, the, 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 well, the timing couldn't be better uh, because the whole community is shifting towards an emphasis on translation of biofabrication. And I think part of the reason that we were won the competitive process is that people realised that if you look at other groups around the world, we, were, we are making a significant contribution to those whole translational activities, not, not just commercial opportunities, but in our work with clinicians all around this country and around the world. And, and finally, on the, on the communication side of things, I mean, this podcast is a small example of a much larger strategy that I know you undertake of, of research communication 
uh, and you certainly engage with a lot of traditional media as well as you have your own media team here within the group, which is unusual in a lot of research labs. I wonder if you could speak to the value of having that kind of that brand and that media focus uh, with your research. Yeah, you know, it all starts with getting the story out to the, the people who it should be benefiting, our local communities. And uh, as, as researchers, without the, the media and communications expertise, that's very difficult to do by yourself. So having those teams as part of the organisation is, is very important. Um, that they know how to get the message across to a wide range uh, of audiences. And so, again, as researchers, we need to listen and we need to learn how to do that. It's a very important skill, I think. It, it's one that's much more apparent in younger researchers than, than it was in younger researchers when I was younger. Because, because again, they're, they're just immersed in it. They're immersed in this culture of, uh, okay, I'm doing research, but I'm doing research because I want to get it translated because people need to use it. And that's the only reason, and the main reason I'm, I'm doing research, you know. And part of that whole translational pathway depends on your ability to communicate to many different types of people along that journey. Uh, and you've got to learn that skill. You know? It doesn't just happen. Uh, and you have to, you know, if you reach a step where you fail in those communications, then the project fails because you can't take it forward without a whole other, lot of other people that you need to engage to take it forward. Absolutely. Um, so your research career has been furnished with many awards and accolades um, from major research grants that we've been discussing through a Eureka Award for Science Leadership, being named the New South Wales Scientist of the Year and an Officer of the Order of Australia. Um, before I go, I wanted to ask you which of these awards stood out for you. Oh, look, they're all important because they, they all, you know, every one of those, we started by talking about teams and how important that is, you know, I mean, you, literally, if you use that analogy of the soccer team, you're, you're just picking up the award, you know, as the captain of the team. You know? And so the, they are important recognition, you, usually from very different parts of the community. It might be from your peers, you know, it might be from other scientists, uh, it could be from a, a much broader part of the community. And, and like the Order of Australia Award, of course, is from a, a very broad spectrum of the, of the community. And so I think all of those acknowledge that the team is valued uh, by many different parts of the community. So they're all important. Um, and the final question before I go, uh, do you have any book recommendations? What are you reading at the moment? Book recommendations? Uh, no, well, I, I do have a book recommendation, but it's not one that I'm reading at the moment, but it's an, an inspirational story. So, uh, And it's uh, Graham Clark's book. I mean, if you, if you want a, a story of, of resilience and inspiration, it's got some technical stuff in there, but it's really his personal story about the battle to, to develop the bionic ear, uh, you know, and, and what, what an amazing accomplishment, you know, 50 years ago to be building that interdisciplinary team in what was even more conservative universities back then and to be successful at it, you know, and, and to have his peers basically deriding the whole idea, saying that it was, you know, it was crazy, that it would never work. Uh, but uh, his persistence, uh, oh, you have to read that book because I, 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 I could talk about it for hours, but you really need to go and read it. it it's totally full of inspiration. Well, that's a, a pretty resounding recommendation. Thank yeah. you very much, Gordon, for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. No worries. All the best. Well, that's all the science we can fit into Lab Notes this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. 
Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Rennie Digital. You can find links to both of those organizations, along with our guest's biography, the papers we discuss, and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Pebble Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing. <laughs>